Welcome to the Agency Profit Podcast, a show dedicated to going deep space on agency operations, which is just as nerdy as it sounds. I'm your host, Marcel Petipoff. I'm the CEO of Parakeeto, a firm that helps digital and creative agencies measure and improve their profitability. Join me as I interview some of the smartest thought leaders and agency owners in our space and go deep into operations, metrics, and all the other things you need to get right so you can spend less time worrying about operations and more time executing on your vision. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Agency Profit Podcast. Uh, Today is going to be a little bit of a different episode. And if you're in Chris's network, then you're probably like, who's this guy and what is the Agency Profit Podcast? So just to preface this, uh, I met Chris a couple of weeks ago, and we just got to talking about agencies. And I love nerding out about agencies with people. And we just had this idea of like, hey, we both know a lot of stuff. We both have audiences. Let's just get on a call. Let's ask each other some cool questions and then let's share it with our audiences because we're just a couple of nice Canadian dudes that want to help people and be as nice as we can. So we're just going to try to talk and create a lot of value. So I'm excited that you've tuned in. Um, For those of you that are not aware of Chris, uh, he helps agencies run more profitably and scale. Um, Scale Up Method is uh, the name of the initiative, I suppose. Upscale Method, I'm sorry. Um, and, uh, and Chris is maybe more Canadian than I am. I always like to say that, uh, the most Canadian people in Canada are from Western Canada. Um, I don't know. It's just, I just love the way that Western Canadians sound. You, you guys are just like the pure, the most pure Canadians in my mind. So I'm just excited. That's, that's funny. <laughs> I, I think it's the because my dad was born in Montreal where there's more French Canadians. I think uh, that I'm missing, I must be missing out on the culture somehow. So I don't know. I'm French Canadian and I feel like, uh, you know, I can say this because I am a French Canadian. I feel like we're not the friendliest Canadians, but uh, I don't know. I've never met somebody from Western Canada that wasn't super nice. Like BC, just, just always, just always good. Just crushing coconies and just, you know, being, <laughs> being beauties. So uh, anyway, it's great to have you on the show. So Chris, I'd love for you to share um, with my people a little bit about who you are and then I can talk a little bit about who I am. But uh, just tell us about what you do, who you serve and, and how you got into it. Yeah, so just briefly, I started in 2007. I was with my buddy in college and he, he already finished the college experience basically and I was just starting, or sorry, I was, was kind of like in the middle of university and he was explaining how useless his university degree was and how he wished that he could go back in time and just start, a, you know, start working and, and doing his own business because he could have saved so much time and made so much more money. So finally he convinced me to just like start a business and, and forget about university, which is kind of funny. Like I kind of regret that to a certain degree because I think university is cool uh, and I don't um, have, have any issues with the university. I, I definitely recommend it, but we did jump in and made our, our agency and we started selling websites. And so I started, we started off selling small little websites at $500 a pop and we kind of just started, um, becoming more and more specialized in, in different areas, flash website design at first, and then WordPress websites, PHP development and mobile apps. And our agency did fairly well. And I did, I did have downs, a divorce was kind of in there. And, and I learned a lot of what would happen for me is there was a lot of stress that I had to deal with at a certain point, And that really taught me that, Hey, this is something that I really want to learn. I want to figure out how to really run an agency properly. And so I became to, I became a lot more, focused on on that problem and then i realized last year when i was helping people things were just going so smooth i was able to launch companies so quickly from you know we went from zero dollars 
per month to $42,000 per month in three months uh, on a new company last year. And it was just, things just were working out so much more smoothly. And I realized that I kind of knew what I was doing and I, I decided, hey, I want to start helping other agencies. So that's what I started to do um, just at the end of last year. And so that's what I do at, at Upscale Method. We, we help agencies. I've been doing that all year this year and I love it. And I love seeing agencies grow and thrive and overcome their challenges. Awesome. So there you have it, folks. This is why I wanted to bring Chris in on the show. Not only is he a practitioner, not only has he done it several times proven, but now he's actively trying to help others do it as well. Um, So really excited to have you on here um, to chat with us today. Thank you. So I want to I want to ask you a question just to kick things off. Is that cool? Yep. All right. Yeah. But one of the things that you and I talked about was kind of like this challenge of do I niche or do I broaden? And then once I figure out what I need to do, how do I actually do it? Um, I know there's, you know, I'm very tapped into the agency coaching space and everyone's always talking about niching down. Um, That's like Mm -hmm. the hot topic right now. Niche down, get some processes in place and just get really good at doing one thing. And, And I really believe that in a lot of cases, that's what people need to do. But how does an agency figure out, you know, if they're too narrow, and they need to start adding services, or maybe they're at a, a point in their growth where they need to start expanding their services, or if they actually need to focus and niche down. Where where do you start to figure that out? It's a very good question, and the answer is not 100% straightforward. I'd love to just say everybody should niche down, but the truth is um, each agency has a different stage, and there's different strategies that work depending on their situation. So. Um, my philosophy is more biased towards niching down, but there are agencies that thrive in, in, in either situation. So I'll just explain two different models where you can kind of understand why, why one would work really well and why another one would work, would work really well. So I met an agency that I was coaching um, in Canada, actually, and they had a really cool process where they were networking locally and they also had a lot of local SEO search terms that they had been working on for a long time. So they ended up being a really dominant force in their local market for just kind of generic agency services. And so they'd bring in website clients and they had kind of three different stages. This is a not, this is a non niche down niche down uh, agency. So they would have um, three main services that they would provide and it would network kind of really well for them. And they're, and they're not niche down at all. So it'd be a website service. And then once they've got the website done, it's natural for business owners to feel like, Hey, like I'd like to start seeing some traffic coming to my website. I'd like to start seeing some sales with my website. And so that would naturally turn into a marketing service. And so then they start to market, you know, whether that's SEO or Facebook ads or all the different marketing services that they would add. And so that would be their, their second stage. And so they would go from website stage to marketing stage. And then once they started marketing, it created demand for unique content, including photography, videos, and all this kind of stuff. So that went to their third stage where they'd have a photography part of their studio and they would they'd have a professional photography studio and video studio and everything. And so that's a really not niche down agency. Like they just kind of do everything for their local service, uh, for their local area. And they made a lot of money. So it's, you know, and, and they're, they're currently working on um, a software, the service project next, that's their next big step for them. And, and that's, that's sort of a common model, like a software, the service project is actually a way of niching down. So you can see that they are moving towards that, but their main income and revenue is fairly good. And it's coming in from um, just sort of a broad approach. But here's what I like about what you just talked about is they're a full service agency in, in that they offer a lot of services, but what they're doing right. And this has always been my theory too, for full service agencies to accelerate sales. Cause that typically full service agencies really struggle with 
figuring out predictable pipeline because they're trying to sell everything to everyone. They're trying to boil the ocean. It doesn't work very well. I love that they have a, a strategy of selling one thing up front as like the initial engagement. It's probably a lower priced thing. You know, they, and they've come up with like a way to predictably get in front of people and close that and have a procedure and, and that's the key. And what they've done is they've used the rest of their services as an expansion on the relationship to keep that client around longer, expand the value of that client. And I love that strategy. So um, yeah, love that you brought that up. I think that's the way to do it if you have a full service agency is pick that one thing that is profitable, that's easy to sell, and then just start selling that thing up front. Um, it's a great way to do it. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a really good way to do it. And so that's what a lot of agencies do. And I think those agencies, the downside is you're probably going to reach a, reach a bottleneck at a certain level. You're going to, it, it becomes quite a bit to manage and you kind of get stuck in your local market. And I think that there is, there is maybe a glass ceiling for that strategy. Um, but you could, you could actually push it a little bit further with, you know, strategy. And, you know, if you work at it, you can, you can get close to it. So the other way to go is to niche down. And that's what I preach and teach is to really, get people to niche down. I think that's made possible a lot easier in the internet world. Before the internet, you can still niche down through direct mail out campaigns, for example, or phone calls and all that kind of stuff. And you can target a certain niche and, and, and specialize in that niche. And so the advantage with niching down is quite big because you can basically go global. And let's say there's, there's one specific problem that happens for one out of a thousand companies. And you know how to solve that problem better than anybody else. If that's true, then you become the best solution for that audience. And so you can start uh, focusing on Facebook ads and, and Google search terms, SEO, marketing, sales pitches. Everything starts to get very, very focused for that specific problem. And you can start to target that specific type of company. And that company, when they see your, your, your specialty and your solution, there's sort of no competition. Like there's going to be a bunch of generic solutions that they're going to be looking at. And then they're going to be looking at you. And you're going to have this solution that's like 10 times more refined and 10 times better fit. And so there's no competition. You pretty much eliminate all competition and that allows you to focus on the global market. Hmm. You know what I love about that strategy too? I'm totally with you. Like I feel like, especially in the early days when you're just getting started, niching down is, is such a great way to go. And it also allows you to charge a higher price point. And on yeah. top of that, if you're good at providing process on the back end, you're stretching your margin from both ends because you're going to have a predictable scope of work that you can probably come up with ways to do very efficiently and, and automate things and make it happen faster. And then you can charge more money than everybody else. That's a really fun place to be. Yeah. It's kind of halfway between a product and a service. And I think that's, that's a good way to think about it because you're kind of trying to specialize to a certain degree that your service is very efficient and, and it's almost like a product is efficient, like a factory cranking out a product. And I know that one of the, the drawbacks to that is a lot of agency owners are creative types. That's why they got into the industry. And so they don't like that idea, which is kind of an interesting situation. I think um, this, the solution is kind of to, you have to be decisive. And I, even for me, for the longest time, I thought that leaving all the doors open was the best strategy because I thought, you know, there's so many opportunities out there. I don't want to miss out on all these opportunities. And I think it's such a psychological trip. Like we want to be creative. We want lots of opportunity, but if you don't make a choice in life, you'll be 92 years old one day and you'll be like, yeah, I have all these doors open. And then you're like, you're, you know, you're, you're done. And, and you need to make a choice. You need to specialize and focus on what value you're going to produce with your life. And then you can, you can start to specialize. Everything starts to become um, so much more valuable. I, I would say 10 to a hundred times more valuable. And I think that's why 
you know, I, even though I've seen agencies succeed without niching down, I think niching down, there's just so much more opportunity because you can, you can, your service could literally be a bot like that just does like steps one through 100. And the client doesn't really have to know that because if you're really efficient at delivering that service, um, then you could have a bot like go through a hundred steps all the time for that service. And, and, your, and your employee cost could be dropped almost zero, which is kind of crazy. And then you can also increase your sales efficiency because you can just focus all your time on one sales pitch that works for that particular type of client. And you can turn that into a video, for example, and it works over and over and over. So everything becomes a hundred times more efficient. Um, and that's, that's, you know, that's not maybe a little bit unrealistic or, or idealistic for, for some people, but, even if you can move one step towards that, that's still going to increase efficiency dramatically. Totally. And you know, the thing that you're talking about too, on the sales side, which I think is important to, to recognize is like, I don't think that people um, that haven't really been in a sales focused role understand how much of sales is just quantitative data analysis. It's like sales is literally a numbers game. And if you actually worked as a salesperson or an SDR at like a software company, you would see that so much of their process is just like, try this script on a thousand people and then let's sit down and compare it to how the last script did. And if it worked better, then we'll test that against something else. And they just do that all the time forever. And so the smaller the, if you're trying to do a hundred different sales pitches, then you'll never get statistically significant data to guide you in the right direction and progressively improve your sales velocity. But if you have one sales pitch that you can refine for one person, then your speed of learning is exponentially higher. And that's how you crack the code. That's how you get a predictable sales pipeline. Um, I think that's just a super, super key thing for people to realize. That's really the beauty of niching when it comes to the sales process. Yeah, it's funny how old this concept is too. I, I learned from Robert Collier, I think his name is, Collier, um, from 100 years ago. He did direct mail campaigns this way and he would always do samples of 1,000 to get his results. And then once he figured out what worked, then he would just scale it up. And, and it's funny how it's exactly the same today. <laughs> it's the same thing. It's just a yeah. science. It really is. Yeah. So to follow up on that, you know, we talked about kind of, you know, two strategies, niching or adding services. I want to dig into pragmatically how we go about doing that. Um, I think there's a lot of documentation out there on how you niche down. Um, you know, when I always like to look at the numbers first, because if you've done 100 projects for 100 people, just start to rank order them, what was the most profitable, <laughs> and then start to explore which ones are the most profitable ones you actually want to continue to do and look for patterns. But um, when it comes to adding services, I don't know that there's a lot of people talking about how to do that in a way that is efficient and profitable. So um, I'd love to know, you know, from your experience, how do you add a service to your agency and make sure that that works out really well? That's, that's a good question. It's not something I, I specialize in quite as much, but what I do specialize in for adding services is add something that's a recurring service. Because if you're an agency, you don't want to have sort of like another to-do list, I don't think. Like you probably want to kind of relax a little bit in the sense that you have all this client acquisition services going on on one side, and why not find a way to turn that into a recurring service, right? Kind of like a SaaS, a SaaS model or something like that. So I made the, I'll just go through like some of the things that I've tried. Um, I, at the beginning, I thought hosting services were awesome. Um, but after 10 years of doing that, it sucks. Like, and, and I just made a, I, I made a post today on Facebook to, in one of the groups I'm in and I explained how crappy it is. Basically you run into people like in the middle of the night, they're, you know, they're, they're upset that their website is down. They need to add some emails to their account. 
um, you know, things are, are going up and down and you have to like pretend to be like this IT specialist at the same time that you're running everything else in your agency. Like you've got to figure out how to keep your server running, make sure nobody's hacking your server, make sure this and this, like it's just this, this completely different problem. Plus you need to have 24 hour service to compete against, um, you know, all the other hosting companies. And it just becomes a, pretty much for me, it became a nightmare because I realized you basically need to have at least a thousand hosting clients plus the full-time IT guy and all this kind of stuff to really do it properly. And then you need to, you know, train your service team to like, you know, do the support calls properly and, and then really optimize and make everything really efficient. So it's a whole different thing to focus on. And so to answer your question, your question was basically, what can you add? Um, so that's something that I just wouldn't add unless I was like a real professional IT guy that really knew his stuff and, and really knew the, you know, the services industry um, in the sense of support calls and 24 seven support teams and that kind of stuff and SLAs and tickets and, all that. And that's not really my specialty. So if, if that is your specialty, then maybe you could. But the other big problem is the competition for hosting is high, like really, really high. Yeah, the market and is totally, totally low on that. Like they're yeah, they're they're charging such low prices. Let's say five bucks a month, twenty bucks a month, whatever. That's kind of what you got to compete with. And then you've got to provide a really high level of service, like as far as support. You know, really quick support ticket answering and make sure that server uptime is high and all these different things. Like it's it's. It's all, like, I'm just going to say it's, it's impossible pretty much for one guy to really do it properly. And it's not something you can just really add without thinking about it. So what I did is I ended up shifting everything over to an affiliate program where I just started referring people to a hosting company that was really, really good. And that was a really easy add-on to my service. Affiliate services are just super easy to add. Like, you don't have to do anything. Mm. Um, there, there are people that specialize in what they do, they're really good at it, and they're 100% incentivized to do it well because they own the company. So when you have an affiliate referral program, I think it's a really easy add-on system where there's just really no no extra hassles, which is kind of an advantage because mm -hmm. when there's no hassles, that's something complexity can easily grow legs and 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 just explode in your face and, and destroy everything. Complexity is your enemy when it comes to business, and so when you have affiliate relationships, that reduces complexity because the complexity becomes somebody else's specialty. And so, yeah, what, and then the other thing that I learned besides that is rather than all these little $5 hosting plans is you should be selling marketing packages. Marketing packages can be $1,000, $2,000, $3,000 per month. And if you have, you know, a hundred clients each spending $3,000 a month, then you're up at already $300,000 a month. So it's way easier to scale if you have a marketing um, hmm. add-on. Yeah, I, I love I love the strategy of using affiliates, whether that be you know software tools or even white label services as well. Like you know, I was just talking to Chris at Dude Agency. I think they do uh, website design, a white label. You know, I was just hanging out with Russ at Design Pickle. They do like unlimited design for social and stuff like that. Um, then you've got people that do white label Facebook and PPC ads like visible PPC and there's all kinds. Those are really great ways, especially in the early days to your point when you're just one or two people to add a service that can be to your point recurring that has a steady margin and outsource all the complexity to somebody who's, you know, really focused on that and has figured it out um, and still get like a very high level of service in a lot of cases, higher than you might be able to provide on your own. Mm -hmm. I found that niching down gives you actually an advantage in that sense. Because if you try to do everything, um, you you can't really form partnerships as easily. Because if, if you're kind of becoming everybody's competition, actually, yeah. which is kind of a weird way of thinking at it. When you're a generalist, you're everybody's competition. And, and you fail, you know, in, in the sense of being really, really good at everything. So if you niche down, then you can be really good at one thing. Plus, you can partner with the other people with the things that you're not good at. So it actually creates more cooperation. And it's kind of a win-win for everybody, especially the customers. 
Totally. It's funny. We went through that same transition with Parakeeto in the early days. We were trying to, you know, I think strategically do too many things. And we ended up realizing that like, we're, if we build this feature, we're going to end up in a competitive space that we really don't want to be in and have no intention of being in. But whether we like it or not, that's where we end up. So we had to really think long and hard about, you know, what areas, because as you know, um, you know, people will ask for every feature under the sun, but we have to really think hard about like, well, no, we're not going to do that. Here's why. And here's who you should go to for that thing. And we'll just try to integrate with them. Yeah, saying no and pissing people off is your superpower, basically, to actually grow. <laughs> In some cases, like, it has to be, yeah. It's kind of funny. So with, I have a couple of questions for you as well. Is that okay if I ask? Or did you have any other questions? Um, no, I mean, th- this has been a good conversation. We can, we can get into it some more, but I'd love to, yeah, if you got questions, let's do it. Yeah, so you're talking a little bit about sales, um, your, your sales script idea, where you said that if you... Um, yeah, if you record the results on a thousand sales calls, then you can kind of analyze that and then switch things up. So I'm just curious, can you go into that a little bit more? Like what, cause you, you do have, you, you are um, like, an, like, I think your, your background is your, actually, did you, did you explain your background here? Like your background in sales and, and all that? <laughs> yeah. So I'll get into that a little bit. So, yeah. you know, my background really for, since my first job has been in sales. I started as most Canadian kids do working at a Tim Hortons when I was 14 and then quickly went into retail after that and really spent a lot of time in consumer electronics. So worked at Rogers, worked for Best Buy, worked for Telus and then worked for Apple as an account manager um, focused mostly on Best Buy. So spent a lot of time in retail sales, especially. Um, and in retail sales, I don't think people realize this, but retail sales, like anything else, is a lot of scripts and testing, scripts and testing, iterative learning, um, and just really learning a process that you bring a client through um, to, at the top end, just ask a few questions to qualify the need, and then just take them through a series of steps to get them to a solution that's going to solve their problem. Um, so I spent most of my professional career in that space until I turned about um, twenty one years old and then left Apple to start my first business, which was actually an agency uh, called Real Tours Media, where I was doing such a terrible name. Oh my God. Where I was doing VR services for real estate agents. So I would go into the home, take, you know, 360 pictures, turn it into a model that they could put on the listing and people could take a virtual tour of the, of the listing. And um, I actually shut that business down because of the problems that I'm now trying to solve with Parakeeto. My unit economics were not good. I wasn't able to charge enough to real estate agents because they're very cheap uh, people to actually be able to afford a, a healthy margin to scale the business. And I realized that I didn't want to be photographing houses for the rest of my life. So I was like, I'm going to shut this thing down. Um, and then, you know, spent a few years trying to break into the software market and eventually got a call about this idea to solve this problem for agencies around how hard it is to figure out profitability and utilization and capacity and track this stuff in real time. And since then, I've just spent pretty much all of my time building Parakeeto and just speaking about agency profitability and learning and teaching as much as I possibly can around that subject. So to answer your question, I do have some background in sales. I still do it today. I'm the chief marketer, chief sales officer, chief everything for Parakeeto at the moment. So uh, it's still a big part of what I do today. Cool. So what what would you say is your biggest lessons in from the retail space? Cause that's very different from my background. I, I wasn't really in the retail space that much. Um, so yeah. How, how did that help you, I guess, with 
your agency? Because actually, the, the surprising thing is that your agency was very niched down to begin with at the very beginning stages. And I'm curious how, how you were able to, to do that and how your sales funnel worked. Like, how did that Oh, did it work well or, or was it, how did that turn out? I mean, we, we didn't really get that far because we just couldn't get real estate agents to pay us. You know, I knew at the very beginning, like if I can't get this kind of a margin, there's no point in continuing this business. So the, I, right. I took a lean approach and I tried to get pre-orders before I really like did any work. Um, and I just couldn't get a real estate agent to pay me what I knew I needed to make, even in the best case scenario at scale. Um, to make that margin. But essentially, it was pretty straightforward. Real estate agents are not hard to find or get a hold of. Um, they're a yeah. very easy person to have a conversation with because they're constantly advertising themselves and they're constantly right. working and handing out their business cards. Um, and brokerages are easy to find. But we took a top-down approach in the early days, one specific brokerage that had quite a few agents. And we just went in and started um, talking to them and talking to their agents and saying, look, this is what we want to do you know, will you pay us this much per house? And people kept kind of humming and hawing, trying to beat us down on the price. Um, we did a few projects, a few test projects. And eventually I just said, look, this isn't going to work if, uh, if there's no way for us to charge. You know, we tested all kinds of different packages and pricing models to try and drive up the margin and we just couldn't get there. Okay. Yeah. So did you, did you last like a year or was it more of just like a, tr a sort of beginner, a sort of beginning test and then you decided to back out of the market after that? It was pretty quick. It was like maybe five months start to finish. Um, and that's, okay. you know, everything from kind of researching the idea for a month to then doing a couple of pilots and then just trying to, trying to really drive the margin up and then just deciding to walk away. So it was pretty quick. Um, and that's all right. in my philosophy. I spent, you know, after that business, I probably did that another four or five times. Um, where I would try to just test an idea and figure out as quickly as possible if it was going to work or not. And in some cases, it was as simple as running a Facebook ad to a landing page for a product that didn't exist and seeing if people would put their credit card number in. And if they did, it would just give them an error message like, sorry, your payment didn't go through. Like, mm -hmm. just to see, like, is this valuable enough for people to give me money for before investing really any effort into actually trying to build the business? Because if you can't sell it, then there's no point in doing any of the building the logo and, you know, all that stuff that people put the cart before the horse. Um, you know, that was always my philosophy of taking a lean approach. Yeah, I love that lean approach as well. I think it's very easy for a lot of beginners to get carried away in their dream a bit, which is, it's sort of good and bad, right? Because like you could, you could imagine it working sometimes, but the fact is it doesn't work very often because the chance that you actually know exactly what the market wants at that given time is really low. And the reason is you, you may have an idea in your head, but that idea might not match reality. Even if it matches your needs, it's, well, it's better if it matches your needs actually, because you're one person that's a real person and you're very likely to have other people who are kind of similar to you. And so if it matches your needs, that's actually one of the better kind of that you can use, but there's still no guarantee that it's going like, to really gain traction until you start getting people to put their hard-earned money out you know, on, on the line. They're really risking their money for your services and your product. So that's, that's the real test is to see if people are going to risk their money. And another point on that, and this is really quintessential to the process of customer development or like customer research, is when you ask for money, then you kind of unlock this secret set of acceptance criteria and objections that you weren't getting when you were just asking people for feedback. Because people aren't right. really nice. Most of them are not going to give you the real feedback. But as soon as you ask for a dollar, 
all of a sudden you get this other set of questions that they weren't going to ask you before. Like, well, does it do this? Can I do that? What about this? What about that? And all of a sudden you're like, oh, these are the things that I have to make sure I, I at least have visibility on if I plan to scale this business and sell this product or service. That's a really good point. So basically you're saying money kind of creates a barrier. Um, it, it's, it's sort of, um, it's, it's sort of a motivational barrier or, 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 um, a risk, right? It's kind of like this extra thing that they have to deal with. It's not just like a survey that they fill out and, and to make you feel good, right? They're actually putting their own hard-earned money on the line, which is, I think, a, a totally different ask. And I, I think that's why it, it opens up another world. And people are so, you know, I've never really understood this, but well, I, I understand, I can empathize with it, but people are so afraid to ask for money when they're not 100% confident that they can deliver um, and it's like, you got to get over that because the value of asking for money early is twofold. Number one, you get real feedback. If the person doesn't buy, you get the real feedback. And if they do give you the money, the worst case scenario is you just give it right back and say, actually, I was just testing this or, Hey, you know, like I decided not to move forward with this. The best case scenario is you just sold your first thing and maybe you don't know hundred percent how to do it, but like, you'll go figure it out. That's how every agency started was a person was offered money to do something and they were like, Oh, I'm not sure if I can do this. And they did it. And they were like, wow, that went pretty good. So they started doing more of it. But uh, just don't be afraid to ask for money early. Even if you have none of the back end figured out, it's the worst case scenario is you refund the money, but you're going to learn from that. Learning is so valuable. Um, It's worth the slight discomfort of not really being sure how it's going to go when you make that ask. That's a good, that's a good point. Another thing that happens is the objections come out, right? And I, and a big part of sales from from my understanding is is kind of you have to plow through those objections sometimes but even even better is if you can predict those objections right like if you can predict what people are going to object to because they have concerns about their own ability or you know financial concerns or whatever it is if you can if you can come up with how how that doesn't make sense before they can come up with it in their own head then they then they aren't going to be triggered and and it prevents the objections and so i think like you said, if you ask for the ask for the sale early, then you're going to get more objection feedback. And the more objection feedback, it's kind of funny because people who are new to sales, I think they want they want to um, avoid objections and, and avoid because it feels like a rejection, right? <laughs> objections are kind of like rejections, like no, I don't I don't want it because blah blah blah, all these reasons, and you feel like oh no, like they don't want my product or service. But really, you need to understand them better. You need to understand where they're coming from and what risks they're dealing with and what what pain points they have, and then you can start to predict that. And I think that's where you can start to carve out a better sales script. Kind of like you're, you're saying is like you analyze those sales scripts, what, what objections were coming up from that sales script. And if you change the, the script, you'll, you'll probably be able to avoid a lot of objections. Totally. And I think the same thing applies to as you increasingly try to go digital in your sales process, like trying to sell services right from a landing page with no tactile conversation, like a great way to come up with that copy is to have 10 or 15 in person conversations, because that's going to inform it's going to give you the feedback that you're not going to get from a person that just bounces from a landing page, you know? So mm-hmm. it, it, it's super important. And I'll, another point that I'll make on objections, the most important thing I ever learned while I was selling at Apple was to be calm when an objection comes up. Oftentimes we try to rebuttal the objection right away. Most of the time, the best response to an objection has been for me, why is that important to you? Or why do you feel that way? Because most of the time, the surface level objection has nothing to do with the actual resistance or the actual thing that they're thinking about. And sometimes it's so far off that you're like, wow, you said this, you're actually concerned about this way over here. 
So Mm -hmm. don't be afraid to just take a deep breath and go, that's really interesting. Why is that? Or why is that important? Or, you know, what, what would be the worst case if that was to come true or whatever it is, but try to get to the, the bottom of it. Why is it really something that they, they feel is important? That's, that's really interesting because I, I find that that exact problem, the, 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 the idea that we're trying to assume what, um, you know, we, we, as soon as they see an objection, we, we start to maybe disasterize or assume all these things in our head and we try to solve it right away. But because the real issue might be completely different than what we assume, we're, we're just wasting our time and making, making them, we're pushing them away essentially because they're like, well, this guy's just trying to make a sale off of me rather than solve my problem, right? And I think that's interesting that that's, that's a fundamental human problem in, in all communication is that we're making so many assumptions in communication that we aren't aware of. Um, if, you're, if you're trying to sell a website, for example, a really good technique is to just keep asking why and trying to understand where they're coming from. How is this really going to affect their life? What's, what's it going to do for them personally? Like really try to get to their core motivators. Because if you can understand that, then you can come up with a solution that fits them perfectly rather than trying to come up with something that you think is good. Because that'll never come across well once you start to, you know, try to sell something to somebody and they're feeling like, well, this guy feels kind of pushy and he's trying to sell this thing that I don't want. Like that's, that's, the, that's the, the pushy salesman, uh, you know, um, cliche or, or, or whatever. That's, that's what we want to avoid when selling. And so the best salespeople are just good listeners and, and they sell a lot better. Totally. A hundred percent. They win with curiosity and they just get the client to tell them exactly what it is that they need to do to add value. And the, the best thing about this is if you're in a position with your agency where you don't need the client, then it's easy to say no to the wrong people, which as you know, can create a ton of indigestion on the back end of your business and really cripple you from growing and making good margins. So um, that approach is it's twofold. You know, you get to serve the clients that you want to serve way better and have a nice cohesive experience on the front end. And you get to say no to the people that just aren't going to be a good fit and be honest with them. Like, Hey, these things are important to you. That's not something that we do, but Hey, my friends over here, you should talk to them. They'd be great for you. Yeah, that's a really good point. All the, all the businesses that, that I've seen that really seem to thrive and succeed, um, they have to go through this sort of growing pain where they start to realize that not every customer is for them. You know, it's like this, this really scary point where you start turning customers away. <laughs> and it's really hard because you want the money, you want your business to succeed, you want that sale. It's sort of an addictive cycle. Like you, you feel this high off of getting, you know, getting a sale and, and, and moving your business forward. And it's, it's such a, a difficult thing sometimes to just say, actually, no, this, this, you're, you're not a really great fit for me. And, and it, sometimes it can be a really personal thing too. Like just that person just, you, you, you dealt with customers and a certain type of personality that you know that it's just going to completely blow up down the road. So you decide like, Hey, this is, I'm getting a feeling that this is not really the, the right solution for you. And, and you're avoiding huge, you know, huge, <laughs> you, you're kind of putting out the fire before it starts. Do you want some free resources to help you measure and improve your profitability? If you do, then I want to tell you about our agency profitability toolkit, which you can grab absolutely free in the show notes or by heading to parakeeto.com forward slash toolkit. It's packed with training videos, cheat sheets, templates, and all kinds of other great resources to help you start measuring and improving the essential metrics that are going to drive better profitability in your business. And it's helped thousands of other agencies around the world do the same. So I want to encourage you to go and grab a copy of that. And if you'd rather get in the fast lane and just have our team of experts guide you through the process of measuring and improving your profitability, then I want to encourage you to apply for a consultation at parakeeto.com. And with that, I want to thank you again for tuning in. I hope you enjoy the episode and I'll let you get back to it. And if you guys want to see a good example of this, my buddy Liam over at Time Doctor, I don't know if they still have this, but on their website for the longest time, 
you landed and there was a questionnaire on the landing page. Are you this or are you that? And when you filled out the questionnaire, if you were the perfect customer, then they would bring you into like their sales funnel. If you weren't, they literally recommended their competitors right there on their website and linked out to them. That's how confident they were in like, this is who our perfect customer is and we don't want to deal with anybody else in that. Pretty crazy. Yeah, that is crazy. And that's, that's kind of that's cool too, in, in a sense of if, if, if their competitor could also kind of do something similar maybe, and <laughs> then they can right. both, and then they can both, but, but yeah, it's, it's a good point that we, we do have to be willing to say no, for sure. And yeah, that's like, I remember, I, I remember some of the worst, the worst experiences I've had running my agency is saying yes, when a part of me was saying no, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, let's bring this client on. I'm excited. But then another part of me is like, what are you doing? Like this client is not going to work. <laughs> We've all been there. I'm sure everyone listening has uh, had an experience like that where they're just like sleepless nights regretting. They knew, they knew in their gut that it was going to be a disaster and it was. Yeah. So once you, once you can kind of take, to, take, take your growth to the next step and realize that this is who my customers are, then I think that changes the game for a lot of people. And they start to realize that their customers are happier, they're happier, and it's, it's more of a win-win situation. And I think the real reason um, we need to be picky about who is, it's kind of like this. It's like, this is, this is fundamentally what I think an agency does. An agency is hiring their clients and they're hiring their staff and they're matching the two. And if it's a mismatch, then both are going to be unhappy. Like the, the, your staff, if they're not doing what they're passionate about every day, then they're not going to be happy in producing their best work. If the client is um, asking for something that your staff doesn't do, then they're just going to be constantly like annoying your staff, like with, Hey, how come this isn't working properly? How come, you know, it's just everything kind of goes wrong. So what you're doing as an agency is you're kind of, you're the connector. You're thinking, okay, so here's the client on one side and here's the, the staff on the other side. I need to be clear about who I am as an agency so I can hire the right staff and hire the right customers. So it's mm-hmm. kind of like that. And then you can connect the two and then you're going to have a lot more harmony and everybody's happier. I think that's how it is. I, I totally agree. And I, I want to make a, a shameless plug here about this is, you know, a, a big part of the way that you figure this out is a lot of it's gut. And just like, you'll notice the patterns, like any human will start to notice the patterns over time, but data can help you accelerate your learning on this so, so fast. If you can, you know, work with a few clients and then go back and actually look at, well, which progress actually went really well. And then you start to realize that like, okay, every website that we've done for an HVAC company has been really seamless and really profitable. And, you know, actually thinking about it now, those have been pretty good clients for us. Then maybe we should explore doing more websites for HVAC companies. Like Mm -hmm. the just having the data set properly organized to assess like who your best team members are, who your best clients are, what your best services are can help you get to a place where you know what those, you know, best things for you to double down are much faster than just kind of flying by the seat of your pants and kind of using your gut purely to make that decision. Although that is probably long-term going to be a good enough radar. Um, You just want to get there as quick as you can and uh, good numbers can help you get there fast. Yeah, that, that, that brings me to one of my questions. I was watching one of your Parakeeto videos and you're explaining like you have these three circles. Can you mm-hmm. describe that just a little bit more for, for the audience so they can kind of understand how maybe they can better manage their agency? Yeah, totally. And for those of you listening that are in the Parakeeto podcast, I'm going to do a solo cast on this and go really deep on it. But essentially, there's only three numbers that you need to track to have a pretty complete view of your agency. Um, Because each of these numbers tells a story about, you know, a lot of the context that's happening behind it, if if you're tracking it right. And essentially, those three numbers are number one, your capacity, how much time 
Are you able to sell in any given period of time, which tells you how much revenue you can earn and what kind of work you can do? Um, and then you have your utilization, which is how much of that time are you actually utilizing for billable work? And it doesn't matter if you bill, you know, flat rates or time of materials or monthly fees. You know, you're st- you still have to manage that time because there's a big difference between, I don't know, spending 20 hours a month on a client who's got a retainer and spending 50 hours a month on that same client. Um, and then finally, your average billable rate, which is every hour that your team is working on a client or on any client, how much money do you actually make? And that's different than the amount that you charge because it's determined by whether or not you're over-servicing clients. So, you know, for example, to, to my point earlier, if you are making $2,000 a month on a client, there's a big difference between spending 10 hours a month and 20 hours a month on that client. And all of this becomes extremely important when you've figured out your sales process. Because as soon as you're able to bring in as, as many clients as you need to utilize your team, then optimizing these things is the difference between having a 10% profit at the end of the year and having 20 or 30% profit at the end of the year. These are most important factors for your profitability. And when you track these three numbers the right way, they can actually be used to create a model of your business. This is what we're doing inside of our software. So you can actually predict the future. You can look at your sales pipeline and say, hey, I think we're going to close about 100 grand worth of revenue. If you know what your average billable rate is, you know how many hours that is. And now you can go and look at, do we have enough staff to do that many hours in that time period? Yes or no? Mm-hmm. Or you, know, you can look at any subsection of your business and say, okay, well, we expect to make $150 an hour. This service on average, we make 170. This service on average, we make 110. Well, maybe we should think about either looking into why that is or just doubling down on what's working and selling more of that. Like there's so much information that you can gather from tracking these three numbers. Um, So I highly recommend if you're listening, start to try and dial that in. And we've got all kinds of resources for free on our website that you can use to get started on that. That's cool. Yeah, just to clarify, I, I... I think it might be confusing to some people. It's a bit confusing to me. You said that, for example, let's say you're charging, let's say you're charging $200 an hour for your billable rate, mm-hmm. but that's not the reality, right? Can you go into that a little bit deeper? Like how, how, how do people get confused on that? Yeah, totally. So confused by, by that too. <laughs> I, I think people, especially people that build flat rates or do value-based pricing, um, don't, they, they think that thinking about things in an hourly rate is like bad or it's not good. But at the end of the day, if you run a service company, if you need a human to spend time doing stuff to deliver value to your client, then you're selling time. Yeah. It doesn't matter how you price it or how you package it. You're selling time and your most valuable asset is time and you have to manage it. And at the end of the day, if you charge a client $2,000 for something and you do it in 10 hours, then you've made $200 per hour. If it takes you 20 hours to do that same thing, then you made $100 per hour. And if you think about your capacity as being like, I can sell 20,000 hours worth of work over the course of a year, there's a big difference if you make $100 an hour for those 2,000 hours or if you make $200 an hour for that amount of time, right? Mm -hmm. So if you don't have the pipeline, then whatever, who cares? Over-service the crap out of your clients. It's, it's all good. But if you have the ability to bring in as many clients as you need to maximize the utilization on your team, then it becomes very important to manage that. And that's what I'm talking about when I say average billable rate. It's that discrepancy between what you expect to make on a project based on you know the scope of that work and what you're charging the client and what you actually make when you factor in the investment of time and materials that it took to deliver that value to the client. Right. And, and basically, I think what you're saying is there's a big gap between what you expect and what actually happens, right? Like that's always, 
Yeah, there can be. Ideally, there isn't. If you're like dynamite at scoping projects and you're always hitting your budgets and you're never over-servicing clients, then great. There might not be a discrepancy, but that's not the case for a lot of agencies. I think reality is, this is this kind of comes to what I teach about in scope creep is the reality is um, we don't always know the problem that we're solving. Our customer doesn't really know the problem that they're solving. They don't really know what they want sometimes. And sometimes they don't really know what they want until they see it. And then things start to change once they see it because they start to kind of get new ideas or maybe new anxieties that pop up. And so they start to kind of want to move things in a new direction. And all these ideas that they have that they think is going to solve the problem might not actually solve the problem. And so you're just constantly managing this weird kind of situation where they're, they're spending their money and you know as the agency hopefully how to provide the value so that there's actual value produced in, in the marketplace from the project. But you have to sort of manage your own client's anxieties and your own client's expectations. The whole time though, you have to make sure that you're really clear about your own communication and really understanding what the client actually really needs. Um, and you have to be really paying attention to the marketplace, which might be shifting throughout the, the week or year or, or, or two years, however long the project goes. So the longer, what I've learned is the longer the project takes, the more likely you're out of tune with the audience. Like your, your project might be kind of going straight, but the market is going this way. And, the, and if you're taking two or three years for that project and you haven't really touched base with your market, like, you know, have, have constant feedback loops with the marketplace, then your project is, is really going to fail, even if you complete it on schedule and on time. If it's a two-year project, you have to always have early feedback loops to keep 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 in touch with your actual real customers, which is your customer's customer in most cases. So mm-hmm. you have to kind of keep the, those feedback loops touching, you know, communicating um, constantly uh, to avoid failure. And you have to keep an open mind that you don't really know, and your plan doesn't really um, take into consideration all the changes in the real marketplace, as well as the changes that might be happening in your in your customer's life, which might be that they're, um, you know, maybe maybe they've had some staff changes recently and, and maybe their boss changed or maybe this changed. And so all of a sudden there's new, um, new, new directives that they need to align with and it completely changes the direction of the project. So there's all these different really random factors that we can't predict when we're, when we're managing projects. And I think that's kind of, I think that's why you're saying there's like this, there's an hourly rate and here's, you know, but here's the reality, right? And the reality is always different because you, you can't predict everything perfectly. It's, it's, it's chaos out there in reality. I think it's, people need to realize how chaotic real life is compared to what's in our head. And this is why, um, but again, that's true, but this is why it's so important to um, just create some consistency in the scope of work that you do for clients. If you can get into a niche, you can solve a specific problem with a specific set of procedures then you can start to eliminate a lot of that uncertainty yeah. and get it down to a place where, you know, you're plus or minus five or 10% on your scope consistently. And over time that data normalizes and it becomes reliable like any other data set. If you have a big enough data set, it becomes statistically significant and it normalizes. And then you kind of know what to expect um, for a specific service or a specific type of project or a specific type of client. Um, but where it becomes really, really difficult is if you're kind of doing a bunch of really bespoke ad hoc projects that span several years. And in that case, you have to add a lot of contingency to your scope. Yeah. And oftentimes it drives up the price and it makes it very hard to win that contract. Um, and to your point, like you could end up, I've seen horror stories. I mean, agencies that I've even worked with recently, big projects, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to do a big video or a big website. And uh, they go from charging the client when they scope out the project, $250, $300 an hour on a particular service to making 
90, $110 an hour. Like that's a big difference. And again, if you have clients waiting to work with you and all that capacity that could be used to earn, you know, new revenue at a higher margin is being wasted on a project that's really driving down your margin. Um, that's a real shame. It's a tragedy. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting what you're, you're saying about um, niching down as well. Because I, I found the same thing. This is what I tell people is if you've done that exact type of project before, like once or twice, then you can scope that project a lot easier. Like, you know, exactly, like not exactly exactly, but your estimate is going to be much more on point as long as you're actually looking back and tie up the actual numbers that came out. Because if you're still stuck in your head with, well, I quoted it this way last time, therefore I'm going to quote it the same this time. That's a mistake. You need to look at the actual outcome from last time and actually match up with reality. As you do that, then your quotes are going to start to become much more accurate and you're going to have a lot less of this sort of scope creep or, or, or lost profits and things like that. And then on the other hand, if you try to just be all things to all people um, and, and you do all sorts of really random stuff. And what I mean by that is the world is really complex and big. Like there are projects like VR projects on one side, there's AI, weird, you know, programming projects on the other side. And then there's like really complex marketing projects on the other side. And, and, and then there's going to be like, you know, print projects where you've got like, you know, maybe some, I don't know, you've got to create packaging or something. Like these types of projects are so completely different than each other that if you're trying to do all of those in, in a way that you, you just kind of think you can do it all, like, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll do that, we'll do that, we'll do that. Like, that's how I, that's how I started. And, and it, it's such chaos. Like, if you try to take on every project, you're going to run yourself to the ground because there's so many different specialties inside of each of those different four areas. And those are just four areas that I just mentioned off the top of my head. But there's so many, like, weird ways that an agency can become specialized in. But if yeah. you try to do everything, then you you really set yourself up for, for failure and for scope creep. You know, you those like what, what you quoted is not going to be reality at all. Yeah. And I'm sure there's people listening that have been in that situation where they're like, they do the math real quick and they're like, I'm working for less than minimum wage. This is not the kind of compensation yeah. that I want to take and given the level of risk I'm taking by starting my own business. Like, yeah. It, there's a real cost to it. That, there, there is. And that, that's actually what kind of led me to, to, to do what I do because I, I was getting burnt out at one point and that led to divorce and, you know, a lot of heartbreak. And so I started realizing this is something that, that we need to solve. And, and I dedicated my life to that. And I started realizing that there's probably a lot of other agency owners going through the, the exact same thing. They're, they have this dream that they want to grow their amazing agency and, and, and have, freedom and do what they love and everything, but they're just in reality, they're burning themselves out. And I thought, Hey, this is something I really want to solve and I want to help people. And, and so, yeah, it's, it, this is, this is where, where I think I can add the most value. And I think you're, it's cool to see that you're doing the same thing from a different angle. And I think it's, it's, it's really cool. If you could, if you could um, maybe tell us a little bit more about how would you exactly, one of, one of the things that you mentioned um, is you want to optimize the, that utilization rate how can people actually do that? Like how can agencies yeah. avoid all that burnout from your perspective? So, I mean, the, the first and most important thing to understand is like, there's no point in trying to optimize your utilization or your capacity uh, until you've figured out how to sell consistently. Um, but you always want to be optimizing for average billable rate from the beginning, right? Which means trying to get really clear about a scope, getting accurate about a scope, trying to get your processes and your procedures in place so that you can realize the maximum amount of revenue with the smallest amount of investment of time and materials, right? So you should always be trying to figure that equation out and come up with some kind of to your point, like quasi productized service 
that you can consistently sell and make good margin on. Beyond that, once you start to get consistent velocity, then you're going to run into challenges with who and when do I hire, which has to do with capacity, and then utilization, which is really trying to maximize the amount of time that your employees can come into the office and be working on billable client work throughout the week. And the things that I typically see that are going to hurt utilization, the first one, surprisingly enough, is client dilution, as I like to call it. There's a huge difference between asking your employees to work on one, two, or three clients at a time versus asking them to work on five, six, or seven clients at a time. The mm-hmm. more clients you ask them to focus on at one particular time, the lower their utilization will be and the lower their efficiency will be as well because there's too much context switching. Um, you know, there's, there's going to be some latency when they switch from one project to another. There's communication gaps. There's all kinds of reasons why they're going to be lower in terms of utilization. The mm-hmm. highest utilized employees that I see are always the ones that work for one client for a long period of time. So the less dilution you can get to your employees in terms of what they're asked to work on and for who, the better. And then the other thing is really just paying attention to your culture. So what's your time off policy look like? What's your sick time policy look like? You know, how often are you, you know, taking Friday afternoons off and or taking three hour lunches with your team or going on retreats, all that stuff is important. And obviously, you should be doing it and make sure your employees are happy and comfortable, but pay attention to it. Because every hour that they're not working on billable client work, that's revenue opportunity that your business is not capturing. And then the last one is really not being afraid to invest in any kind of technology um, that's going to allow you to plan your resources out more efficiently or allow your employees to reduce the lag time between when they come in the office, they do the things they need to do and they start working on client work or they switch between things or they get into a productive environment. Um, So, you know, this could be just investing in faster computers. This could be investing in better tools that allow them to decrease the amount of time they spend emailing files to clients or collaborating with each other. Um, And another important thing to pay attention to as well is just being cognizant of how much administrative stuff you're asking your billable employees to do. Um, So this is things like internal communications, internal projects, again, you know, reporting, tracking of things. More, the easier you can make it for your employees to, you know, track their time, log whatever reports they need to log, communicate with each other, keep their manager up to date, the more burden you can take off of them and maybe give to an administrative assistant or a virtual assistant to make sure that their value is maximized through billable time, then that's what you want to pay attention to and optimize. But if you're looking for the low hanging fruit and you're struggling with utilization, probably the first place to look is client and task dilution and try to try to get people doing, you know, longer, more consistent tasks for fewer clients, and they should increase their utilization dramatically by that. That's interesting. So it's kind of like a focus thing. It's, it's very similar to, to the whole agency niching down. It's funny how this, this recurs almost everywhere in life. Like I looked back on my life, which, like, which goals did I actually achieve in life and why? And one of the things that I noticed was when I only had one goal, I, I usually achieved it. When I had like five or 10 goals at once, those are the times that I didn't achieve it. Actually, when I had two goals at once, I was very unlike, I think almost, almost never would achieve two goals at once. But when I had one goal, it always seemed to work out. And so I thought that was a really interesting realization that, that focus, um, focusing on one thing seems to, seems to be more, than, more, than, more effective than you would expect. You know what I mean? And, and it's the same with our employees. And it's the same with our agencies. If our agency is focused, then we run better. If our employees are focused, then they run better. Everything focused runs better. But when we start to dilute ourselves with so many different distractions, then things turn into chaos very quickly. And I think that's, that's a really good advice to, to focus on 
no, yeah, reduce dilution. So there's another, um, this, there's a phrase that I learned from, there was a book I was reading. I can't remember exactly the book, but he said something like part-time, yeah, part-time employees lead to part-time results. And I, and I thought that was really good because it's the same idea. Part-time employee is a, is a diluted employee. They're, part of their mind is going to be on their other full-time job or maybe another part-time job or whatever. And then the other part of their, of their life is dedicated to you, which isn't really, because of all the task switching, they can't really dedicate like 100% of, of their mind to it. And the, the interesting thing about this is if, if you do have one focus, that's what you're dreaming about. That's what you're eating about. That's what you're sleeping about. That's what you're talking about. It's going to be sort of, your whole mind is going to be using that focus, that focus point, which makes it so that everything else is kind of empowered by it. And I think that's a really powerful way to live life is to be very focused. Um, it's, so, yeah, it's surprising to see the, the difference. I think it's, and there's, there's a lot of science behind it too. Like it's very neurologically taxing to be switching contexts all the time. And that's why it's hard to be a solo startup founder and wear seven hats. Like it's not, I know that this is not the most effective that I could be. And so as a founder of a company with a team, the, one of the best gifts you can give your team is the ability, the, the gift of being able to focus because there is no replacement for that focus. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's good to be able to manage that. Um, this, this is also why it's very difficult for smaller agencies. They start going to Upwork or Freelancer or Guru or whatever, and they try to get all these freelancers. It's very difficult to manage that way because these freelancers are basically, um, they have a list of maybe five or 10 projects that they're working on. And then you've got clients that have deadlines, right? So you're kind of in the middle between like, here's your agency. And then you've outsourced it to all these like upward freelancers or whatever. And then over here, you've got your client that's expecting something today or tomorrow. And you're thinking, and, you're, and your freelancer is saying, oh yeah, it'll be ready. And in real life, like they, they have a bigger project on their plate and they're stressed out about it, right? Like you don't know that. And I think that's, it's, it's, a, it's a dilution problem. And I think that problem is, is amplified when you're doing freelance work. And that's why I find that as soon as you possibly can, get one full-time employee and, and, and like you said, get them focused on something that, that they're going to be fully focused on rather than scattered. And, and that's going to increase the efficiency of your agency. Totally. I mean, I, I, and freelancers are a big part of, I think, running an agency today. A lot of people are more and more um, creating what I like to call auxiliary teams where, you know, and it's, it's really a risk mitigation strategy, right? It's like, you know, if, if their pipeline isn't consistent, it tends to ebb and flow, then that is a nice low risk way to have capacity that can flex. But typically, to your point, it's going to come at a cost in terms yeah. of quality, it's going to come at an administrative cost in terms of managing those people, because there isn't a consistent relationship. Um, you have to develop that over time with freelancers. And usually it's going to come at a lower margin. You tend to pay a higher cost for freelancers hour per hour than you would for a full-time employee. So um, yeah, to your point, like obviously if you can have a, a full-time employee, that's great. Um, that generally requires you to have a little bit more predictability in terms of your sales velocity. But um, that's why you know sales velocity is is really a precursor to a lot of this stuff. And it's important. Yeah. It's it's just surprising to me that for so long I thought that outsourcing to freelancers was kind of the best solution, and um, it's it's still it's still good in some cases, of course, right? If you're especially if you're just starting out or if you just have like the odd job, one of the best ways that I've used freelancers is if they're highly highly specialized in one area. Wow, like you can like it it can it can take you sometimes twenty to forty hours to get like a, a really simple thing done that another freelancer could do for maybe like half an hour, which is really interesting. Like if you can find the exact fit for a certain problem, I found that to be a really high utilization of, of a freelancer. 
a freelancer's time. Like find somebody that's highly, highly specialized in the exact thing. And I think that's one of the powerful things that I've learned with, with freelancers. But like I said, there's this really surprising blind spot that hiring freelancers has this inherent sort of unreliability problem and, and prioritization problem because they have to run their own business with their own priorities. And I think that's an invisible wall. You can't really see into their life and how they prioritize. It's not because their priorities are not your priorities. And that's something that a lot of people struggle with when they, when they outsource. They think that, that they have control over the situation, but really they don't. And I think yeah. that's a, a really um, a, ri- a risky way to run a business. And that's why, yeah, so as soon as you can, try to get like your full-time employees. And, and yeah, that comes to sales though. And so if you can have a good sales pipeline, then that starts, that, that's, that's the core of having a successful agency or su- successful business. It, it always comes back to sales, um, unfortunately, which is, it, it's, it's maybe not the, the most exciting thing for, for the creative types of people out there who want to work exclusively on really cool, you know, video or web projects and, and, and tech projects and things like that. Um, but it does come down to having consistent sales. Yeah. Yeah. You're totally right. But you know, again, it's like once you figure that out, because it is just a system, it's not as nebulous as people think it is. Once you get a system in place, you get some people in place that can follow that process and you start to see some predictability. Then you start to look inwards at at the business and start to optimize that. And that's when you just see tremendous results and and huge amounts of profit coming in, a a level of complexity in the business that's like so much easier to manage. And uh, all of a sudden you find yourself feeling like, man, it's too easy. This this shouldn't be this easy. That's funny because I... I've always found this, the same issue. Um, at, at first it's super hard to get sales. And then mm-hmm. once you've sort of cracked it, like once you've got like the right scripts or the right approach and the, and the right offers and everything starts to really line up, then it seems like you, you get to this point where you're like, Whoa, that's, you know, too much. Like I've, I've always seen that it's, it's sort of, it's never in the middle for me. Like it's always like you don't get enough. And then all of a sudden you've got too many once you've got the system working. And I think that's really interesting because, um, I think that's how, this is just back to, to niching down. Um, but I think that's how value is created in, in companies. Like when you, when you niche down and focus on, for example, if you're creating a process, the, at the beginning, the process is going to be really weak. You know, it's, it's going to have problems. It's going to be inefficient. But, but once you've niched down and you've decided this is the type of customer we're, solved, we're, we're helping and this is the problem we're solving, then you can start to design a process where that process gets better and better and better. And if you're doing that process repeatedly over six months or 12 months or whatever, pretty soon that process becomes so efficient that your costs drop almost, almost to nothing and you're able to produce a huge amount of value. And it's a weird, um, it's a weird switch. Once you, once you can do that, there's just so much more value that you can produce per hour for your customers that, um, yeah, that's, but that's, that's where I, that's where I see, um, value is, is, you know, it's, it's hard to explain, but it's, um, it's the idea is you're kind of using the past and you're, and you're taking that knowledge and you're kind of compressing it into almost like your like a process or a, almost like a product internally that creates the value for you. You know what I mean? You're, it's, it's like you, that's, that's the process is you're, you're using all that past knowledge and compressing it into your own tool or, or product. And you're able to leverage that so that you don't have to completely reinvent the wheel all the time. And that's where, yeah, you, your efficiency goes through the roof. Totally. I feel like we've kind of come full circle with yeah. this conversation. You know, we've, we've, we've tied a nice knot around it. It's been know, almost an hour, uh, but it feels like it went by super fast. I've been having fun. I hope whoever's listening is having fun as well and, and learning lots. Um, so but with that, I think it's time to, to put a bow on this and uh, let people reach out and join the conversation and kind of take this to the next place. So I'd love uh, for you to share, Chris, where people can get in touch with you 
Um, and then I'll, I'll of course share my contact as well and, and we'll keep the conversation going. Yeah, for sure. It's just upscalemethod.com and I have a, a little contact link there and I usually set up an appointment and we can go through your, your agency's issues and, and yeah, I can, I can help you from there. Awesome. And for those of you listening on the Parakeeto podcast or the agency profit podcast, I'll leave uh, some links in the show notes for you guys to check that out. Uh, and for those of you that are listening in Chris's network, uh, of course, I'm Marcel and you can reach out to me at parakeeto.com. And uh, my email is marcel at parakeeto.com. So feel free to fire me an email if you have questions. Wherever you're watching this or listening to this, leave a comment. Let us know what questions you have, what your best insight was. I'm sure we'd both love to hear from you. Yeah, thanks, guys. Hey, thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you've ever found yourself thinking, man, I get so much value from this podcast, I wish there was something I could do to return the favor. Well, today's your lucky day because you can leave us a review wherever you're listening to this, and it is incredibly helpful. Of course, if you haven't grabbed a free copy of the Agency Profit Toolkit, go and get that. It's got tons of free resources to help you improve your profitability. If you're looking to get in the fast lane and get help from experts to improve your profitability and measure your most important metrics, then apply for a consultation at parakeeto.com. We'd love to chat with you and figure out how we can help. With all of that, thank you so much for being a listener and we will see you on the next episode.